CBHDD is reminding people that the Georgia Crisis and Access Line can help those worried about opioid and stimulant misuse. The toll-free number is online and is active 24-7. More information at opioidresponse.info. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another day of Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. So glad to have you with us on this Thursday. Uh, As I promised, throughout this, our first week of a brand new schedule, I'm going to go over it briefly with you because um, in keeping with the way the House impeachment managers are repeating information over and over and over again because they know it takes a while for messages to get through, I'm going to do the same here. Starting this week, Political Rewind is airing at 9 a.m. Monday through Friday. During the impeachment trial, we will not be on the air at 2 o'clock in the afternoon as we have been for the past six years. But when the impeachment trial is over with, we'll be on at 9 and the show will repeat at 2. Uh, No, it won't be a fresh show. We'll do a little updating if news warrants. But what we're telling you now is you have an opportunity to listen to the show either at 9 or 2. And, of course, you can always listen to us by subscribing to the podcast, which many people do. Um, We should also say that for people who like to uh, comment in real time on Facebook Live, the, the reality is that you'll do that now at nine, the 9 o'clock show. You can watch us on Facebook at 2, but it's not going to be the same as being able to uh, respond to us in real time. But you can still leave your, um, your thoughts, your messages, your ideas when you watch the show on Facebook at any other point of the day. So, again, 9 o'clock now when the impeachment trial is over, 9 o'clock and 2 o'clock. I hope that makes sense. I hope you all like the change. And you know what? If you don't, let me know. I really want to hear feedback from listeners because this is a a big move for us. You'll be able to listen to On Second Thought on Friday morning at 11 o'clock with the great Virginia Prescott. Her show will air again at 7 o'clock on Saturday morning and 11 o'clock on Sunday morning. All right, let's get to it. Tamar Hellerman, senior reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution and now a resident of the city of Atlanta. Welcome to New Political Rewind. resident with the ID, the Georgia ID to prove it. Really? You've got your Georgia Very driver's exciting. license now? I have a vote that matters. What wow. is this? Congra- <laughs> <laughs> don't look in D.C. anymore. Congratulations. <laughs> and, and you don't miss the uh, circus going on up there, you told I us. I don't. I thought I would miss being there for this historic moment and... You know what? It's nice being down here. (laughs) Okay, good. Uh, Across the table from you, for those of you who are watching on Facebook Live can see, is uh, State Representative Mary Margaret Oliver, Democrat from Decatur. We love having you on and are glad you're back today, Mary Margaret. Thank you. Good morning. We're going to talk a little bit about a big bill that you're really working hard on, uh, and that's a bill to deal with coal ash um, coal ash what? What's the f- next word? Combustion residue. Coal oh. ash that comes out of the coal fire plants across Georgia. As in coal ash pits? What's the... They are stored, for my focus, for the House Bill 756, it's about coal ash ponds. Right. And the access that the coal ash ponds give to our water That's, that's the word. And while we're uh, introducing uh, members of the legislature on the show, uh, State Senator Brandon Beach, a Republican from Alpharetta, uh, you're with us by phone, Brandon. We know that you had a scheduling issue that you couldn't get into the studio in time, but we really appreciate your joining us uh, for well, the show in any case. Well, thank you for having me. Appreciate being on it and uh, look forward to the conversation. We should point out that Brandon Beach uh, has been a, uh, a highly visible and important member of the state Senate for a long time. He uh, spent a little time looking at, and was a candidate for the seventh, uh, sixth district. Uh, uh, congressional seat, Lucy McBath's seat. And then, Brandon, I think it's fair to say, all of a sudden one morning you woke up and realized, wait a minute, there's more to do in the state legislature, and I basically have more power in as a committee chair and uh, as a member of the majority here than I might have in the minority in Washington. Fair enough? Well, that's pretty fair. I, I don't like to use the word power, but I do. I would tell you this. As chairman of the Transportation Committee, I still do think we have some, some work to do on freight and logistics and and moving freight through Savannah, through our state. And um, so there are some, some opportunities and challenges. And I just, uh, I, I will tell you, I, I started going to study committees that we did on the 
uh, you know, in between session. And I just realized I enjoyed the Senate and I enjoy making a difference. And I, I think that I can make more of an impact uh, by staying in the state Senate uh, uh, at this point. Yep. So that's what I decided to I, do. I, I appreciate the humility, the way in which you uh, eschewed the notion of being powerful, but we know you do have a good deal uh, of power in the state Senate. Dr. Andrew <coughs> Gillespie is here uh, with us, too. She teaches political science at Emory University. And Andra, I'm particularly glad you're here today because we're going to look at some polling data and you know how to crunch numbers like just about no one else who's on this show. Well, thank you. It's early, so I hope it's <laughs> <laughs> working. All right. Um, let's get started. We, we went through another day, of course, of the impeachment trial uh, tomorrow. The House managers spent the day the first of what could be as much as 24 hours of testimony on their part over or presentation over three days. Um, But I'll be surprised if they're going to end. Are they going to end up using all three days to do this? They seem to be laying out their case pretty clearly. And I wonder if at a certain point there's diminishing returns. At the same time, I think you're going to use every minute you have to make your case. And as you mentioned, I think before we got on air, it, it does take a while for things to kind of sink into a person's brain. So you're going to say them over and over and over again. Um, but at this point, they, they aren't really allowed to admit new evidence and, and that sort of thing. So really, we're just repeating a lot of the stuff that we've already seen in the press and the the last couple months and, and that we saw in the House impeachment trial. So let me throw out a question. Um, and Andre, if, if I may, let me start with you on this question. Um, there is a feeling among some observers of what's happened so far that the, the impeachment managers from the House are laying out a case with such specificity. You may not like their case. But I get the fact that you may oppose everything they're doing. But they're laying their case out very methodically with great specificity. They're using sound bites and video to uh, essentially bring witnesses into the trial before there's even a vote on whether there will be witnesses. And there seems to be a sense that it's going to be more difficult now than it might have been a day ago or two days ago for Republicans to vote against actually bringing witnesses in. What's your sense of that? Well, To bring in public opinion here, one of the other things that's working against um, Senate Republicans is uh, public opinion that says that a majority of Americans want a fair trial and that they want to see witnesses. And and particularly if citizens call their senators and say you should vote to at least have witnesses regardless of of how you vote at the end of it, I think that puts a lot of pressure on it. Um, You know, I didn't get to see all of the debate yesterday and so was trying to watch it in the middle of the night, which meant that I was falling asleep and waking up. Um, But... What I saw from Adam Schiff in particular, and I actually thought that he was, uh, from a rhetorical standpoint, the most effective of the House managers in terms of making the case, was when they would make a point that we were here. I'd love for you to see this piece of evidence, but y'all won't let me see. Y'all won't let me show this to you because, like, y'all are letting the White House, like, violate subpoenas and not actually turn stuff over. You could do this. Um, And I think actually from a rhetorical standpoint in terms of making the appeal – it's also, you know, really important that they're rolling the dice, that this could be like an OJ sort of with the glove moment, right? You know, you could put the glove on and it might not fit. And sort of just holding that self up to kind of falsifiability and the idea that I really don't know what's going to happen and I have to be open to evidence sort of being revealed, which might be exculpatory, is actually a powerful argument to the senators. And it actually undergirds that notion of fairness that I think most Americans want to see at yeah. this phase in the trial. Brandon, I was a little surprised to hear several senators last night during breaks, and and a couple of Republicans as well as Democrats, say they believe that there are any number of members of the Senate who are seeing and hearing this case and this information for the first time, saying, you know, we've all been busy in our own committees. We have work to do in the Senate. We weren't able to pay the kind of attention that others may have to to the House hearings, and they are, some of them... (coughs) being exposed to this, if not for the very first time, certainly in depth for the first time. What do you think the impact of that might be? Well, I mean, I I do think that that could be true in the sense that, I mean, I know down here in the state Senate, we've been busy with appropriations meetings and so on. So we, you know, catch what we can on the news. But uh, some of the stuff I'm hearing is for the first time also. So I'm sure, you know, if they were doing the business of the Senate, this may be some of the first time they've heard this. Um, so I, I, I don't know. Mary Margaret? Uh, 
I'm watching it as a lawyer. Uh, Adam Schiff is really impressive to me, and I saw parts last night of his two-hour. The way they're able to use the video of Trump indicting himself in his own words, the testimony of the witnesses before Congress, is so skilled, incredibly skilled. And the preparation that he's done to lay out the case I think in the nature of oral argument, you always tell the juror or tell the judge, this is what I'm going to show you. This is what I'm going to prove. And then the opportunity for him to say, I want to prove more. I know I can prove more, but you won't let me, is a really interesting twist. Highly skilled, lawyer-like presentation had a big, big impact on me, and I'm guessing on most people. The details, the specificity, and the use of the videos of the witnesses was incredibly impressive. The, uh, 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 Tom Faust pointed out to me that it was John Kennedy, senator from Louisiana, who, who hears his quote, uh, he, uh, talking about the senators. They're hearing the prosecution's case for the first time. If you poll the United States Senate, nine out of ten senators will tell you they have not read a transcript of the proceedings in the House. And the tenth senator who says he is... He has is lying. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, so let me, Mary Margaret, start with you because you point out you you are the lawyer. So Chris Carr became one of 21 uh, state attorneys general who signed a letter that they uh, sent uh, off to the uh, uh, Senate, in which they called for an end to the impeachment, saying that it was. Um, Illegitimate. Let me let me see the the impeachment. Here's from the letter itself. The impeachment proceedings threaten all future elections and establish a dangerous historical precedent. The new precedent will erode the separation of power shared by the executive and legislative branches by subjugating future presidents to the whim of the majority opposition party in the House of Representatives. The attorneys general of South Carolina, Louisiana, Utah, Alabama, Alaska, Arkansas, Florida, Georgia, Indiana, Kansas, Kentucky, Mississippi, Missouri, Montana, Nebraska, Ohio, Oklahoma, South Dakota, Tennessee, Texas, and West Virginia. They say it's an unconstitutional trial. I picked up the argument, the uh, many of the process arguments that are being made by the president's legal team, and the process argument that everything is illegitimate because they didn't take a vote first, or because Nancy Pelosi didn't take this 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 step. Uh, their defense of process is boring, and political messaging. It doesn't go to the substance of the case. Uh, I like Chris Carr very much. I'm disappointed in him kind of getting on the national bandwagon of let's message that uh, that uh, this is all a process issue. You know, one of the reasons that the Democrats stayed in power is that the, for as long as they did and, and will again, in my opinion, is that they focus on Georgia pol- They focused on Georgia politics and the way in which the current Georgia Republican leadership goes with the national Republican leadership uh, doesn't serve Georgia's interest. Brandon, how do you think your constituents up in Alpharetta are receiving this information? Well, I mean, I, I think they're watching the news and they're watching, you know, Fox and CNN and so on and watching the proceedings. But um, I will tell you, they've got other issues in their life that they're more concerned about. And it's the things that we are working on here at the state level. And I would tell you, I would disagree. I think Republicans have done a great job at the state level. We're the number one state to do business seven years running, and that does not happen by accident. That happens because of conservative principles on lower taxes, less regulation, an educated workforce and infrastructure investment. And when we do the basics of blocking and tackling and let business flourish, we're going to see job creation, and that's what we've seen. You know, you drive through Metro Atlanta right now and you start counting the cranes that are in the air that are the development going on. It's it's pretty incredible. And I can tell you, I was in Louisiana about a week and a half, two weeks ago, and we are the envy of the southeast, the state of Georgia, and what we're doing on infrastructure investment, what we're doing on job creation. We've got three economic engines in this state. You look at the World Congress Center, where we have thousands and thousands of people coming to conventions. we got Hartsfield-Jackson Airport the busiest airport in the world, and you've got the Port of Savannah that the last eight years have grown at double digits, yeah. and it's continuing to grow. So yeah. that, that happens because of, and listen, it's bipartisan support, too. I mean, I'm not saying the Republicans have done it all by ourselves, but we have, we have produced good policies that are, that are very, very yeah. good for, 
for business. Tomorrow, it is certainly true that in the late, the newest AJC poll, state legislature gets pretty high approval marks compared to certainly Congress. Sure, <laughs> where uh, you know, appro- national polls have show they have lower approval ratings than cockroaches. Yes, yeah. <laughs> I want to go off something that that Senator Beach was saying, kind of right at the beginning. Um, where impeachment does not seem to be resonating as much down here. And that's been something that, that's been a shock to me, having moved down here right at the beginning of December. That was right when um, you know, the, the hearings were going on on the House side. And being up in D.C., it's so true about this bubble where we're following every twist of the screw and we just think that the whole country is watching and they've stopped everything to watch every moment. And you realize that, that no, you go down to a place like this and it's barely registering. Or if it is, it's just enforcing people's views Either they they really supported it or they, they've really been against it. And you look at polling and, and you're finding that in general it's not changing anybody's mind. Yeah, that's the interesting thing, isn't it, Andra? Well, I mean, yeah, so that people are kind of hardwired and, and, and fast into their heart and kind of uh, political positions, which is, you know, an element of polarization. We talk about legislators being polarized. They are a reflection of us and we are just as polarized as regular people. Um I think the thing to kind of, you know, keep in mind is is that part of the reason why also people may not be prioritizing this or paying attention is because of this notion that it's kind of already baked in what people think based on what their partisan position is, is that there really isn't anybody who can be persuaded. Yeah. And until there is some new bombshell information, something of the equivalent of the revelation of the Nixon tapes, which have to be revealed – um, that, you know, just, you know, call me back when it gets interesting. And so it hasn't seemed particularly interesting yet, just because even the big bombshell news, like, you know, Lev Parnas, for instance, is trickle stuff, and it doesn't look like that's actually going to move things one way or the other. So it's either that or it has to be the announcement of, you know, a block of Republican senators that they're going to vote um, to remove President Trump from office. And we haven't heard that either. No, we haven't. And we already know, Mary Margaret, that uh, Kelly Leffler and David Perdue both have uh, landed firmly in the in the camp of uh, defending President Trump. So that when a vote comes up for witnesses, there's not much reason to think that they will vote in favor of that unless the president suddenly changes his mind and says, yeah, we really need witnesses because we don't have... I'd love to know what their constituents are telling them in phone calls to their offices. We don't have polling about how Georgians feel about witnesses. Georgians uh, seem to be polling that they want to hear witnesses. That's what I'm hearing from national and local. Uh, I haven't seen anything I'm, about Georgia specifically. Nationally. Nationally, there's a, witnesses. a people, majority by, by a wide margin. To, I agree that people are not as tuned in, obviously, as we are. But to the extent they are tuned in, I think people think of this as a trial. And a trial does mean witnesses. And the, the interesting part to me, and I don't, I don't pretend to be typical, although I am busy and distracted by other things, I was fascinated by the witnesses that came before Congress. I thought they were so compelling to me. They were so professional. They were so really doing an excellent civil servant job in the midst of craziness. Mm. And I was impressed by how they presented themselves, the professionalism, I will want to see more of that, although and I the, think most people although do. Although the Republicans do have one argument here that I think bears in keeping in mind. I mean, when we got to the judiciary hearings, um, it was absolutely true that Democrats re- rejected Republican requests for, for witnesses they wanted to bring to the table and did create the impression that Republicans are now building on quite clearly that there was an effort, there was a partisan effort to move this forward as quickly as possible, meet Nancy Pelosi's deadline of having the impeachment voted on before Christmas. I do think that's given Democrats a little bit of an optical-ish problem here. Oh, absolutely. But you, going back to, I think, what... what Mary Margaret was saying earlier about Adam Schiff and kind of the rhetorical flourishes that he was using, you know, don't you want to hear more? I wish I could tell you all of this great new stuff I've gotten. His audience, its he's not talking to the David Perdue's and the Kelly Lefflers. They're at this point, they've kind of, it seems like they're they are very firm in what they're believing. He's talking, you know, he, he needs four Republicans to cross over to vote with Democrats in order to um, get the 51 votes to do new evidence, to call new witnesses. So he's talking to your, you know, your vulnerable, more centrist Republicans who are up for re-election this cycle. Uh, Susan Collins, Lisa Murkowski, those people. Of the and, I'm sorry. And, one, one last comment before a break. You want to do it? 
Well, he's giving them a chance to vote on one way to help themselves politically, knowing that they'll then obviously convict. And that's that's he's a master at that. He wants to protect his senators. So giving Susan Collins an opportunity to ask for witnesses would give her pluses, and he wants to keep her. All right, you, you want one last comment, uh, Andra? So, I mean, I would, you know, I would agree that there are optical blunders um, on both sides and that people have played partisan politics. And, you know, th- I get the Republican objections to that. But on the other hand, there is the issue of did he do this and is this a problem, right? And a majority of Americans agree that what he did was wrong. Um, and I think it just is a question of how serious do they take it and do they think it's serious enough to warrant his exclusion from office. So to hear it, to see this document that Chris Carr has signed, that's signed by Republicans, it's like, call me back when you get a Democrat to agree with this, because how is this any less partisan than Democrats saying we're going to gun for him from day one? Yeah, well, they've done what any lawyer does. They have looked at they actually do make specific legal arguments about both articles of impeachment. And of course, they've done what any lawyer in any legal case does. They have looked at interpreting the Constitution at the facts in a way that supports their size. I, I aside, I find it hard to fault them for wanting to interpret the law to uh, favor what they're, the outcome they're hoping for. All right, let's do this. Enough of impeachment today. We've got a lot of state news to talk about. We've got two significant legislators with us today, and Andre Gillespie and Tamar Hallerman. So let's take a break, and when we come back, let's plunge into some news from the legislature. Is your used car or truck creating stress in your life? Donate it to GPB, where it can create more hours of your favorite programs instead. It's easy to give. We provide free and convenient pickup and send you the paperwork for your taxes. Call 877-GPB-1-CAR or go to gpb.org slash cars to donate today. That's 877-GPB-1-CAR or gpb.org slash cars. And thanks for supporting GPB. Support for GPB programs comes from our listeners. And Georgia Farm Bureau, the Farm Monitor, airs each week on GPB-TV, offering information on the food Georgians eat and the farmers who grow it, plus other information on Georgia agriculture. Airs Saturday mornings at 8 and Sunday mornings at 6. And Southern Environmental Law Center, protecting Georgia's environment and health through the power of the law. More information about how to be part of something powerful can be found at southernenvironment.org. Welcome back uh, to Political Rewind. Uh, Mary Margaret, Brandon Beach, you have uh, have the week off from legislative sessions while um, budget hearings are going on. Agency heads bringing their needs to the appropriations committees of the House and Senate. Um, and I want to I want to go to something in, in in terms of that that I'm I'd love to get your insights on and, and then ask Andra and Tamara to weigh in also. Um, Governor Kemp this week went before the, the budget hearings, in, into the budget hearings, and he said he's absolutely committed to his 2,000 teacher raise, um, which is not surprising. It's part of a political promise he made to a constituency that's important to him. Um, he said, even if it threatens this proposal for another, what, half percent? Quarter half, percent. Quarter percent, thank you, uh, <coughs> cut in the income tax rate. Um he also, though, tried to make the case that his major budget cuts, 4% in the current fiscal year, 6% in the next fiscal year coming up in the summer, um, is he, he says it's being done without jeopardizing services. And yet we have agency heads like Gary Black, uh, agriculture commissioner, coming in and saying, I'm going to have fewer food inspectors. Uh, there are ways in which these budget cuts make an impact on me. Mary Margaret and Brandon, I'd love to hear each of you weigh in on, on how you feel about the way this budget is, is unfolding. Mary Margaret, go ahead. and then we'll I get have uh, spent all of the last two days listening to the agency heads put, um, in many ways they've attempted to put a happy face on what is a pretty severe action by Governor Kemp in late August. Two months after he signs a budget that the House believes we own, because we start with the budget after the governor gives us the budget, uh, he made these cuts, and cuts have been implemented. Uh, Furloughs have been implemented. And what the budget hearings have done is given us an opportunity to drill down just a little bit. Several million, between two and three million dollars cut from accountability courts. 
we have a lot of investment in these accountability courts. It was signature issue for Governor Nathan Deal, criminal justice reform. It has saved money, we know, because the dropping of three to four, three to five thousand prisoners out of our prison system based on not incarcerating nonviolent prisoners who saved us lots of money. So the investment in accountability courts has been successful. To cut several million dollars from that is going to change what we are trying to deliver. Vic Reynolds, GBI uh, director, director, I think really got into trouble yesterday on questionings of cutting, I think, seven to nine different crime um, investigators, crime laboratory people. Got in trouble because he spoke out on it. He got questioned. He got questioned. He's saying, we're going to do our job. We're going to do our job. And then you say, well, look, you're cutting nine positions in a place that has a high (laughs) level of visibility, a high level of sensitivity particularly the rape kit issue that is was cleared up based on a bipartisan effort, and now we have another backlog. I think that Vic Reynolds, who is getting new money for the gang stuff, but is losing many more significant dollars in terms of crime lab, is an issue that the district attorney and the law enforcement community knows. I have a case right now where um, a death investigation, not a crime, just a normal death investigation, is taking months. Which is just totally distressing to the average Se- citizen. Senator, um, the governor says that these, these savings, which amount to, I think, uh, $200 million this fiscal year, 300 next fiscal year, he says they, they can be handled by, and he's already trying to do it, consolidating service, cutting overtime and administration, reducing real estate li- leases, and also eliminating 1,200 vacant jobs. But you all in the legislature, I think it's safe, safe to say, are not quite convinced by the way in which he's laying out this case. Is that fair? Well, I, I will say this. On the teacher raises, I support that. And I will tell you, I came, I grew up in Louisiana where we didn't uh, invest in education. And consequently, companies not only didn't uh, come there, they left. And... Uh, and I will tell you, when you peel the onion back, the uh, when you're successful from an economic development standpoint, it all starts with education and having an educated workforce. So I fully support supporting the education. I will tell you on the cuts, I can tell you eight years ago I served on the DOT board. Mm. We had 7,500 employees. I was with Russell McMurray yesterday during his uh, appropriation hearings. There are 3,600 employees, and they're still delivering services better than ever. So uh, they've just learn to do it uh, through outsourcing and, and uh, using the private sector and, and saving on employees and benefits. So it can be done, and we just need to look at innovation and technology and so on to make sure we're still giving the good service uh, but not having the employees so, uh, and, so, the, and the fat we had when, when I was at DOT. I apologize for interrupting. So Tamar and Andra, my, my observation, and you, I'd love to hear you all weigh in on this, um, Andra, it feels like from the very beginning of this, from the day that the governor announced these uh, significant cuts, 4%, 6%, uh, and then went on to try to explain where the cuts should come from, when we hear the governor say in the state of the state, business is better than ever, we're booming, best date to do business in, seventh year in a row, and then say, but we're tr- we got to worry about whether or not we have revenue collections. And I can't help but wonder if the governor's office ever figured out a message, a, a, a straight, clear message on what the, is really happening here. And to, I think that's hurt them. I think that's left the door open for people like uh, the Speaker of the House and others to say, what is this all about? Well, I mean, I think the message is mixed. Yeah. And I also think that there needs to be a greater justification for how you can expand services and or cut taxes and like you know expand service and especially with respect to education and then cut in other areas yeah. that seem to be pretty necessary and vital. I mean I think most people can get behind the idea of paying teachers more because we know that that's a thankless job and that people are underpaid and that that has consequences for who you can recruit. I'm actually willing to pay extra in taxes for it and don't need the the you know the quarter percent tax cut in order to be able to do that. You can justify that to me. So you can't expand a program and then cut taxes and tell me that somehow this is all going to end up lowering the budget. 
And, and frankly, if you want to say that there is waste in terms of departmental spending, that's fine. Cut the fat, demonstrate the savings to me, prove that it's still efficient um, and that you're not just sliding stuff to other places via outsourcing. And then maybe I can be convinced that, OK, we can cut taxes at that point. But to do it simultaneously, I think, is the much harder sell. I, I think, uh, Tamar, Andra just said what I was hoping to say much more articulately than I did, which is we just we need a very clear message. They do, the legislators themselves, and then all of us as citizens of the state, we need to understand what this is all about, especially when I hear Gary Black say, I'm going to lose food safety inspectors. That worries me as a citizen of the state. Sure, and that that's something that I, I think every citizen would, you know, of course you want food inspectors. <laughs> it There's may some... have been a clever thing for him to land on. I get that, too. Sure, and something I, I love to hear more from Senator Beach on is just what you do as a Republican when, you know, you want to support the governor of your party, you want to give him room to be able to work on his priorities, but there are some things that were very popular, like Governor Deal's criminal justice overhaul and things like those accountability courts where all of a sudden the governor— the new governor wants to take things in a different direction. And how much room do you want to give him um, or, or how much do you fight in a turf like these budget Brandon, hearings? I think that's a good question for you. Well, I mean, I think, we're gonna, you know, Governor Deal did have some great ideas and, and we've done some great things with those. I've been to some of those graduations of those drug courts and so on, and it's uh, it's very touching uh, to see lives changed. And, and I don't think Governor Kemp wants to, to get rid of that in any way, shape or form. But I will tell you, he's got some other good ideas on foster care and some other things. And it's not going to take employees. It's going to take the private sector, the business community, the faith-based community to implement some of these things. Um, but I would tell you, you know, you don't cut your way to prosperity. When I was in business, you grow sales and you grow. And I'm not saying raise taxes, but I'm saying grow revenue. And one of the bills I have is the destination resort gaming bill that would bring in a lot of revenue for the state, but also create jobs and economic development. And I've been very consistent on the destination resorts and horse racing and bringing the equine industry to the state of Georgia. And the real money's not at the track. The real money's in the horse farms, the hay farms, the breeding, the auctions, and so on. And if you have a holistic equine program, it will create thousands of jobs, which will pump money into the economy. And people say, well, we can never be Kentucky like the Kentucky Derby. Well, you know, don't forget years ago, people told us we could never really be in the movie industry. We wouldn't be Hollywood of the South, much less Hollywood. And now we're number one in TV and film production. And it's because Georgia put the right plan together and went after that industry. And we've grown that industry and grown jobs. And, and those jobs are, are putting money into the economy. Yeah, I want to, so you know, I want to. I, I, I would tell you that's what we need to do. I, I do if what... we do that, we, we will we won't have to worry about cutting because we'll have more revenue coming in from job creation. I, I do want to mention, I do want to give you a chance in a, in a few minutes to talk a little more about uh, gambling and, uh, uh, and, and we will get to that. Mary Margaret, will you want to respond to what you're hearing and then we'll move forward? I want to say a good word for Gary Black. He's an independently elected constitutional mm -hmm. officer and he's probably one of the most respected long-term uh, heads. And when he says something, people really listen. The other appointed guys, men and women, are trying to be a little bit more careful about how these cuts really, really impact people. And that's my concern. When you're cutting mental health services after you've devastated mental health services based on the civil rights uh, lawsuit and closing of hospitals, when you're cutting money, this was a question that came from Terry England, which matters if he's asking a question. When you're cutting the Cave Springs School for the Deaf and the School for the Blind in Macon, those are the kind of things we've invested. Public defenders, right? Council? Uh, many public defenders. He, he, the governor, backed away from furloughing public defenders. They furloughed public defenders in September, and that's something that the governor changed. Oh, okay. But they're still losing people and losing credibility when you say we're going to, five years ago, we're investing in our public defender system, we're investing in our accountability courts, we're making our criminal justice system more constitutional, cheaper, safer for the public, and then you start cutting millions of dollars from all it. All right. Um, we're going to watch how this all unfolds. Um, you know what? Let's get our final break of the show out of the way now because there's still a lot 
to talk about. And Brandon Beach, you really reminded me that if, as long as we have you on the show, we really do need to let you spend a few minutes uh, discussing with the rest of the panel uh, your proposals in terms of gambling. And uh, so let's do that. Let's talk about coal ash. Let's talk about whatever we have time to do in the remaining time on Political Rewind. We'll be right back. What duty do colleges have to protect their students from harm? A good learning environment needs to feel secure, but legal fights are playing out all around the country about how responsible universities are for student safety. I'm Todd Zwillick. Colleges, the court, and the battle to keep students safe. That's next time on 1A. Join us for 1A this morning at 10 right here on GPB and online at gpbnews.org. Support for GPB comes from our monthly sustainers. And Georgia Public Library Service, a unit of the University System of Georgia, the Pines Card, gives access to 11 million library materials that can be delivered free to a local library anywhere in Georgia. georgialibraries.org slash pines. And Savannah Book Festival, the opening address will feature bestseller Joseph Cannon, author of The Good German and most recently The Accomplice, Thursday, February 13th, 6.30 p.m. at Trustees Theater. SavannahBookFestival.org. Dr. Andre Gillespie, uh, the AJC's Tamar Hallerman, State Senator Brandon Beach, Mary Margaret Oliver, uh, Representative House, House member from Decatur, all with us today. Um, let's take at least a first crack with the time that we have here on a couple of bills that are going to get a lot of attention uh, during uh, the legislative session. Uh, Mary Margaret, you have a bill uh, that would force Georgia Power to uh, deal with uh, the coal ash ponds that have been building up around the state of Georgia. It's considered a real environmental hazard. Uh, tell us what your bill is. We'll do the kind of briefly today, but tell us about your bill and what kind of response you're getting. Our goal is to have all coal ash ponds lined. That is the only way to protect our water source. Georgia Power has made an application to the Public Service Commission to close coal fire plants across the state. There's 17 coal ash ponds where residue of coal combustion reside in water on top of or in our aquifers, and five of those ponds are not lined. Plant Shear down in Monroe County is the largest coal fire plant in North America. It produces more coal ash combustion residue than any plant in North America, and it has an unlined huge set of ponds. We cannot allow coal ash toxin to filter into our aquifers. That is dangerous, not only for us enthusiasts. I, I have a house on Fighting Town Creek. I lived on Chattahoochee and Lake Lanier when earlier in my year. I paddled the Altamaha. We cannot allow our water source to be endangered by coal ash. It's a complex engineering issue. It's a complex, complicated federal and state EPD, EPA issue. And Georgia right now, because of the size of Plant Shear and because of the number of unlined coal ash ponds we have, is going to be one of the states in the union that has to set a standard that all coal ash pond must be lined. And the Duke Power Company settlement last week requires all ponds to be lined. So that's one of the big parts of this, right? Your bill will call for lined uh, uh, pits, whatever ponds, whatever they're called, that the coal ash will sit in, whereas Georgia Power is talking about simply dumping coal ash into landfills where the fear is it will leach into water sources. And according to the Southern Environmental Law Center, there already are sites where Georgia Power's uh, uh, coal ash has leached into groundwater around some Georgia Power plants. There's re they're required to do well testing and water testing, and we know that well test, they know, will tell us water testing will show leakage into wells. The, the pattern of Georgia Power, which is probably a good business pattern, is when they find a well that has toxins and they'll buy the property. They have bought in excess of 1,500 acres north of Plant Shear in Monroe County just to make sure that this buffer, but that doesn't require, that does not protect our water source. 
Georgians care about water. Farmers care about water. We all do. And this is a time to have this complicated, important, and expensive conversation. And House Bill 756, we hope we'll have hearings. We hope we'll have an opportunity to explore where we feel that there are dangers that can be prevented. So, Brandon, Georgia Power is a pretty got a pretty big lobbying force down there at the state capitol. This will cost them more money. Do you suspect that Mary Margaret is going to have a fight on her hands with Georgia Power and maybe with some legislators who aren't as convinced as she is that you've got to do this into lined uh, pits or whatever? How do you think this is going to play on your side well, of the building? Listen, I, I want to. I look forward to reading her bill and 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 looking into it. And uh, there's nobody that doesn't in our state that doesn't want clean, safe water. Uh, including Georgia Power. So uh, we look forward to having the discussion, the debate, and seeing what, what we can do to make uh, sure we are keeping our citizens safe. Andre, all this comes at a time when the administration in Washington is uh, rolling back any number of measures put in place by executive order mm-hmm. by President Obama to protect the environment. I mean, in so many fronts, the list goes on and on and on. Uh, so we're, we are living in a time when you can't depend on the notion that we have to protect our natural resources to be a winning argument. Well, I mean, if you listen to President Trump in Davos, he did say that he wanted clean air and clean water. Yes. Um, you know, <laughs> didn't want to do what everybody else says about that and still denies climate change, but, you know, still, you know, made that pledge. You know, I think this is where federalism is actually really important. Um, and understanding how it works, just because the national government may be abdicating its role, that doesn't necessarily preclude states from being able to institute standards that are actually higher than what the federal minimums are. Um, and so this is a place where lots of states, including Georgia, can take some leadership um, and actually demonstrate that they will care for the environment in ways that the federal government might not be doing through the EPA right now. Okay, um, we're going to watch it, Mary Margaret, throughout the session. You'll come back at you now and then and talk to us about this, among many other things, I hope. I'd be happy to. Fight through that 9 a.m., that 8.30 traffic <laughs> to get here. Uh, Tamar, let me give you a lead into Brandon Beach and where he is in terms of a measure he's supported for years now, has been a leader on. When when the governor started talking about hard times, the revenues were not coming in the way they should, we're gonna, the tax cut of 2018 uh, created some issues in terms of revenues, whether we have enough. It was the perfect opportunity for people like Brandon Beach to step up and say, well, I have some plans that could, in fact, increase revenue significantly, in his case, horse racing, paramutual wagering. But certainly gambling, Tamar, is um, back in, in, in the headlines because the state may be looking for new revenues. Sure. And I'm <laughs> we were talking before the show that I don't know anything about gambling. And yeah. so I'm not the one to talk about it. But I, I'm curious to hear what, what Senator Beach has to say. Yeah, well, Senator. <laughs> well, I will tell you, as you said, Bill, I've been talking about this for seven years yep. now. Uh, gaming, destination resorts um, and the equine industry. Let me tell you what's happened. Uh, the Supreme Court uh, made a decision that you can have sports betting throughout the country, not just in Nevada and New Jersey. And that is really what's driven the conversation now. And we've got letters of support from the Falcons, the Braves, the Hawks, and the Atlanta United. For sports betting. Sports betting right. For sports betting. But here's the situation on that. It doesn't bring the revenue in that the other two industries bring in. And it doesn't bring the jobs because 85% of sports betting is done through your phone, mobile app. So it doesn't create the jobs. And I've been very consistent that I want to create jobs and economic opportunity. And I I would tell you this. I want you to think about this. If we went to the Department of Economic Development, a company, and said, I want to invest $2.6 billion, I want to create 5,000 construction jobs, I want to create 7,000 permanent jobs, and I don't want any tax incentives, I just want to build this facility, we would be throwing a parade for them. But since it has gambling involved in it, Everybody wants to put the brakes on it. And I will tell you, it's about jobs and economic development and revenue. And if we do let the voters decide, all I'm saying is let the voters decide. Mm-hmm. And the AJC just ran a poll that said 67% of the voters want to, to vote for this and they want to vote yes. And I can tell you, my wife and I went the day after Christmas, got in our car and went to Murphy, North Carolina and Cherokee, North Carolina. And we went through the parking lot. And you know where 85% of the license plates were from? Georgia, Georgia, I'm sure. So let me okay. let me just ask so, you real quick. So, so wait. So 
you've got sports betting in the mix. You've got casinos in the mix. You talk about those as well as paramutual wagering. When you talk about a, uh, a, a resolution to put this on the question on the ballot, are you talking about one that you want to see one amendment on the ballot, ballot that opens the door that says, yes, we want to legalize gambling without reference to the specific form. How, how do you there's, see that there's playing out? There's a question out? I've, I've, I'm working with legislative council now to come up with a constitutional amendment that asks one question. Would you uh, want to have uh, gaming, paramutual wagering, and sports betting? Yes or no? So it's, it's all three in one question, not three separate questions, and it's very simple. Uh, don't make it complicated. And those are the three things we're looking at because sports betting is something that, uh, you know, obviously the, the uh, franchises want uh, to create entertainment value. The, I think the citizens want to be able to do that uh, and, and make a place a bet on a game without going to uh, a legal bookie, an illegal bookie. Uh, and I, I do think that uh, what I'm pushing for is the other two that create uh, industries, the equine industry and the gaming industry and create jobs that will also uh, create revenue. And we're right. talking about, if you put all three of these together, you're talking about 750 to $800 million in new revenue uh, is what the projections are. So you talk about fill the hole and the gap really quick and help uh, fund our Hope Scholarship. When you look at, my daughter went to Georgia 12 years ago. She got 100% of Hope. Right now, if you enter the University of Georgia, you're getting about 71 to 72 percent of the Hope Scholars. Mary Margaret? I agree that sports betting, the Supreme Court's decision, has changed the conversation a little bit. Uh, the, it's, a, it's an industry that is booming, and the application of using your smartphone, which we use every smartphone for everything right now, has changed the conversation. Its revenue would be estimated to be $75 million dollars. The horse racing and destination gambling entities uh, have had lobbyists on the ground in the Capitol for many more than uh, uh, Senator Beach has been involved in this conversation, and they're upping their game every single year, thinking that they can bring the destination resort industry here. Many of the downtown metropolitan chamber-supported entities are not keen on that, the destination sport entity because it's competition that they don't want to have. Horses are a bigger industry in Georgia today than peanuts. My family invested in my riding all as a child. We bought, you know, all those kind of things that is that industry, the hobby of horses, the um, the mini farms, the 4-H, the, all of that is very good for Georgia. Uh, but horse racing tends to be a dying sport or industry right now across the nation. There's not a sports horse racing calendar that gives Georgia a time to have its uh, event. There are people uh, that are around the, uh, uh, the racetrack in Hampton that own 12,000 acres that think that'd be a great place to have a horse racing venue. Uh, I'm not sure that that industry could thrive All in right. Georgia. I, we're, we're getting short on time, and there's one more issue I want to take on. Brandon, if you could just very quickly respond to what you're hearing Mer Mary Margaret say, and we'll have more time to talk about this as the session goes on, but just a brief response, please. Well, I can just tell you that it's going to be private dollars, and, and I think the, the folks that want to bring the equine industry here, the, the, the real money is in the breeding and the auctions. And you're not going to have breeding, you're not going to have a Georgia bred program without horse racing. And we do have a two-month slot where it's too hot in Florida to race, but it's too cold in Kentucky and New York, and we would have a, a great climate for a eight-week uh, live racing right. uh, meet. Clearly, that's an issue. We're going to watch that very closely. And, hey, real quick, Bill, I do want to talk about one other quick bill. Yeah, SB, do it quick. SB 282, Keep Georgia Kids First Act. We have too many kids that can't get in our universities that are 4-0, SATs, and they're getting into Vanderbilt, Tulane, and some of these other really uh, high esteemed schools and can't get in our 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 flagship universities and uh, in early enrollment last year Georgia had 41 percent of their early acceptance letters from out of state and we're turning down our students and I've got a bill that's going to change yeah, that. we'll watch that. why don't we why don't we uh, find some time to talk about that okay. I, I appreciate Thank you very that. Much. all right wait I, okay Andre we got to take advantage of you you being here because of your your ability to look at data what is going on? 
What has Bernie Sanders been doing that has suddenly given him this enormous surge? CNN's new national poll shows him way high up as in he's up there in first place by a fairly significant margin. WBUR in Boston just released their latest poll. Bernie Sanders went from 15 percent in December in their poll to 29 percent in January in one month. Joe Biden is down to 14 percent in New Hampshire. Pete Buttigieg is uh, well behind. I don't see what Sanders It's not like he suddenly dumped more money out there. What's going on? So I'm only going to speak to the national polls. Okay. Um, If I'm I'm looking sort of at the trends sort of as compiled by Real Clear, um, uh, Warren and Sanders were running pretty much neck and neck until December. And then there starts to be this break in more recent polls where Sanders is coming out ahead of Warren. Some of these, depending on their sample size, are going to be within the margin of error. And it's sure. still actually really important for us to see that sort of overall nationally. If we average the polls, Joe Biden is still in the lead. And then Bernie Sanders is on his tail. And in some of those recent polls, Sanders and Biden would actually be statistically tied with, with each other. Um, a couple of things to kind of keep in mind in terms of looking at sort of how to decipher these polls is pay big attention to sample size. Yes. So the sample size is like very dramatically. We have some that only have like four or five hundred. Yeah, BURs it's like four hundred thirty-two. So right, and big so, margin of error. Right, there. that margin of error is if I'm doing this off the top of my head. I hope I get this right. <laughs> plus or minus six. Yeah. Um. So um. And when you're going to compare from poll to poll, like that margin of error of plus or minus six is going to increase by forty percent, and then you still have to double it in order to say that like there's actually any significant change between one sort of poll and the next poll. Um, yeah, just take all of this stuff with a grain of salt. I think probably what it looks like is that um, as Warren got greater scrutiny, people started to indicate that they were going to support her less. And there may have been some migration potentially over to the Sanders side. Yeah. Are these races still going to be pretty competitive? Yeah. Um, and so, you know, just given how imprecise these these polls are just because of the relatively small size of many of the samples here. You know, you could still expect for them to be for there to be surprises, and also for these yeah. polls from a statistical standpoint to not be wrong. You know, tomorrow Nate Cohen at the New York Times, who really knows how to crunch numbers too, he suggests that the reason for Bernie's surge is that Elizabeth Warren has fallen off ever since she told us the price tag for Medicare for all. But that, strangely enough, considering he's raised more money than anybody from small donors, Bernie Sanders has been flying under the radar <laughs> and sort of creeping up without a lot of people going after him, attacking him. And so so Cohn says that's why he's surging. It's also why, as the surge takes place, he'll start feeling the same pressures any other leading uh, candidate exactly. does, and that'll start pushing him maybe the other direction. You can argue that the media and the other candidates <laughs> haven't been scrutinizing him as much, especially since he had his heart attack a couple of months ago. I think people kind of thought he was down and out. Or, you know, Elizabeth Warren was kind of the shiny object for a while with that huge health care plan, and how much does it cost? Now that he's vaulted to the front of a lot of these polls, I think there's going to certainly be a lot more scrutiny of what he's saying and doing and the price tags. Mary Margaret, we're almost out of time. Have you picked a candidate yet? I don't even know if you've endorsed. I am making myself crazy sending money to several <laughs> different people. And I don't believe that. Who are you sending it to or don't you want <laughs> last to Last night I sent, I sent dollars to, last night, this is ridiculous internet stuff, uh, Joe Biden, because I refuse to believe that Bernie Sanders is. Michael Bloomberg is going to change this discussion. All right. We are out of time uh, for today's show. By the way, Sanford Bishop has now endorsed Joe Biden, uh, the congressman down in the third district. So we'll watch how all of that unfolds. Brandon Beach, we want to have you come back to talk about your student bill. Mary Margaret, you know we always love having you here tomorrow. And Andre, you too. That's it for us. See you tomorrow. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts.